when ethical funds aren't ethical, what's behind the investment trust IPA rush and how to move cautiously out of cash. I'm Kate Bealey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor, and this is the Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Show. A lot of us want to invest for income, but what if you want your income without the tobacco stocks? Ethical income funds could be for you, but it's a more complicated area than it seems. I'm here with personal finance writer Emma Adjaman and Andrew Summers, Head of Fund Research and Investec Wealth. So Emma, ethical, it's actually quite a subjective concept, isn't it? Does it mean no tobacco? Is it about climate change? What's the definition? There are lots of different ways of looking at um, an ethical mandate and funds approach it in a variety of ways. For example, some funds exclude certain sectors such as which they consider unethical, such as tobacco, gambling, alcohol or arms manufacturing. Others invest in um, companies tackling environmental or social problems. Others try to persuade companies to address environmental, social or governance problems, known as ESG for short. And th- there are many funds which kind of cross use a crossover of these strategies and will mix and match between them. OK, so some funds deliberately exclude things and, and there are some funds which are more about actively investing in things. Is that fair? Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. Um, And in fact, this isn't just kind of fluffy, I guess, moral stuff, is it? Because bad social or bad ESG records can have some real business impacts, can't they? I'm thinking of Volkswagen here. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's the argument that's made by um, these funds that want to invest with, with an ethical or responsible income approach. So companies that have a good track record of considering the environment and social impact of their activities could also be better companies overall. And as you, you, know, as you point out, Volkswagen is a really good example of this, as when the company was found to have cheated on their diesel emission tests, their share price took a massive hit. Okay, I mean, Andrew, what what do you think about that? Do you think there is a correlation between companies with good environmental records and their share price performance or or not really? Not a strong, consistent correlation, no. But uh, at the risk of sounding like um, Bill Clinton before a grand jury, uh, it depends on what you mean by a bad environmental record. Clearly, companies that suffer from negative publicity or even financial censure from a poor environmental uh, track record are likely to see their share prices underperform competitors with a pristine track record. Uh, Having said that, there are so many different reasons why share prices move that in all but the most egregious of situations, their environmental record is unlikely to be that material. So it's kind of, but corporate governance, maybe uh, kind of their climate change ethics, maybe not then, is that what you'd say? Yes. Okay. I mean, Emma, you talk about an interesting side effect of investing in ethical companies in the UK, and you say that these are actually mainly defensive sectors, which don't tend to pay dividends? Um, Yes, that's right. There are definitely more ethical growth funds than income funds. And one of the reasons is that um, in the UK, most of the the yield that companies get is from defensive areas such as tobacco, pharmaceuticals, oil and gas. And these are areas that funds with an environmental or responsible investing mandate might be less likely to want to hold. Yeah, because in fact, ethical income investors would be quite hard pushed, wouldn't they, to find um, an ethical income stock they liked in the the top five payers of the FTSE, for example. Yeah, that's true. Um, Most of these companies are in pharmaceuticals cause oil and gas and tobacco. So um, the top five companies last year included things like Royal Dutch Shell, BP and GlaxoSmithKline. And the FTSE 100 obviously very weighted towards those mega caps, Definitely. isn't it? Um, but that said, there are some ethical income equity funds out there, aren't there? So mm-hmm. what's an example of one and how does it kind of go about 
Yeah, yes. there's, there's definitely a few of them out there. So it's worth taking a look at the magazine because we looked at quite a few. Um, I spoke to the manager of FNC Responsible UK Income, which is a fund that targets income as well as capital growth. Um, they have a pretty good yield of 3.84%. And the fund is roughly split 50-50 between FTSE 100 companies and small to mid-cap companies in order to achieve that mix of growth and income. Okay, and, and what approach uh, do they take to this concept of ethical? What do they define as ethical? And they invest in companies whose products and operations they consider to be of long-term benefit to the community, um, which they describe as both in the UK and abroad. And they will also exclude companies which they consider to be involved with harmful practices and products and which trade um, too much with oppressive regimes. Okay, so um, that must mean they can't buy some big chunks of the FTSE, does it? Mm -hmm. Yes, that's right. And so does that change the way that they have to um, approach income from their stocks? Well, the manager told me that um, unlike traditional equity income funds, which she says tend to get most of their income from FTSE 100 and buy in a little bit um, of growth through small to mid caps, um, this fund looks for companies which are able to provide both growth and income. So she was saying that everything in their portfolio needs to be to be working towards, in, you know, given those two things. OK, um, so that all sounds pretty good. But this supposedly ethical fund does hold mining giant BHP Billiton, doesn't it? It does. Um, and it just shows that this is an area that, you know, this, this fund is not alone in holding some stocks that some ethical investors might be not be particularly keen on. Um, but they say that the reason that they hold um, BHP built-in is that they consider a whole range of factors when deciding whether to invest in, in a company and not just their products, but also how the company behaves. Um, and they say that BHP Bilton has a good and established record on sustainability standards and community relations, which is why it's one of the few um, mine companies, companies that they can hold. Okay, Andrew, what do you think? Are there instances where you think investors might be surprised by some of the stocks in their ethical fund or, you know, where these might contain certain companies which could be considered unethical? Certainly, because as Emma has alluded to, ethical investing means different things to different people and an ethical fund manager therefore screens his or her investments based on his or her definition of what is ethical. Incidentally, you can be as surprised by what is screened out of an ethical fund than uh, as what is actually in an ethical fund. So it's very important for investors who consider uh, ethical investing to be important to them for them to understand the ethical process and screen of the individual fund so it matches their definition of what is ethical. Okay. Emma, what's another example of one of these ethical funds? Um, well, another example is Henderson Global Care UK Income, which also aims for income and growth. This invests in UK companies that contribute to social well-being and um, it says the protection and wise use of the environment. OK, and how has it performed? Um, it's performed pretty well. Over five years, it's returned 91% and it has a yield of 3.79%. OK, um, and we've been talking about equities here, but what about bond funds? I'm, I'm assuming you can find ethical bond funds too? Yeah, definitely. Um, there's actually lots of really good ethical bond funds available. And one ethical bond fund is in fact one of the best performers in its sector, isn't it? So what is that? That's right. Rathbone Ethical Bond Fund, um, which has a yield of 5.3%. Um, so, you know, really big yield there. And it's among the best 10 performers in the Investment Association's sterling corporate bond sector over both one and five years. So good fun there. OK. Um, Andrew, are you familiar with this fund? 
We are, yes. We have uh, a team of analysts who look at uh, ethical funds specifically. But I have to say that it's it's most likely that the performance of this fund has been determined more by their views on interest rates and currency than it will have been from the fact that uh, their investments are purely screened on an ethical basis. And what kind of things are they invested in then? What, what do you think are the holdings that have benefited them? Is it about being short duration then or...? Well, the, the the performance has varied over time depending on their particular positioning. But the point I'm trying to make is that even if an ethical sector does particularly well, it is not necessarily the case that it has performed well because it is ethical. It may have performed well because of other factors uh, unrelated to its ethical stance. Okay. Um I mean, do you, do you think generally there is a perception that you should expect uh, slightly lower returns from an ethical fund? Do you think they have a kind of bad reputation in that sense? Not everybody subscribes to that view. Many ethical investors hold the not unreasonable view that companies that conform to the best ethical practices, however one may define that, are best placed to thrive in the long run. In other words, bad ethical practices will come back to bite you at some point. Yeah, I mean, you you said there that you know, the performance of a fund, you can't kind of really draw links between the ethics necessarily and the performance. For example, uh, Rathbone's having done very well there. I mean, do you think you can draw any trend in the performance of funds and their kind of ethical credentials or not really? Well, counter to what I just said, I mean, all other things being equal, an ethical fund will likely underperform. And that is because whenever you limit your opportunity set of investments, you limit your potential returns. In the UK, for example, a very strict ethical screen could reduce the market available to you by 50%. Mm, Which is quite significant, isn't it? Um, Emma, have you found there are any other downsides to these funds, kind of very generally speaking? Um, Yes, I mean, Andrew's right. Um, Another sort of downside would be the fact that these funds tend to end up being concentrated in certain areas of the market because of the areas that they exclude. Um, And they can also be more volatile because the areas they tend to exclude will be in those defensive areas such as tobacco. So they can be more volatile for that reason. Okay, Andrew, what what do you think about that? Do you think that that is what tends to happen? You, You don't have these kind of more defensive safe stocks or what? That's certainly one uh, problem, yes. But I go back to the original point, which is that ethical ethical investing tends to screen out a lot of opportunities. And the more you screen out your opportunity set, all other things being equal, the less chance you have to add value over and above the benchmark and deliver returns for your investors. And where do you find these ethical funds? Can If investors want to access one, are they all grouped in the same category or are they kind of dispersed among the universe? It's it's quite hard work, actually, because they tend to sit in their respective sectors. So unless you have a, an ethical screening tool yourself, often you are literally um, resorting to looking at the names of a fund in a sector to establish whether you think the fund group is at least trying to, to have an ethical fund. OK, have, have you got any favourites in terms of ethical funds? We have a number of ethical funds on our list. We we especially like the offering from, from Kames and from Standard Life, but uh, there are a number of providers. It's a growing area and uh, it's well worth a look at uh, the whole universe. Okay. Thanks, Andrew. And thanks, Emma. Now, later on the show, we're going to look at how to move cautiously out of cash. But now it's time to visit a spate of investment trust IPOs. Emma, you've been looking at this, haven't you? What's What's going on? 
Well, yes. So far this year, we've already had six investment trusts um, have an initial public offering, which compared to last year where we had a grand total of four, um, is a big difference. Yeah. Um, why was there a pause in the first place, do we think? Um, well, the analysts we spoke to at Winterflood said that this was due to the uncertainty leading up to the EU referendum vote. And then obviously the fallout from the fact that it was a shock Brexit vote um, caused some people to just decide not to um, put out an IPA. OK, so there's something that all of these new trusts have in common, isn't there? What is that? Yes, five of the six trusts that have had an IPA this year have an income focus. And it just goes to show the continued demand that there is from investors for yield. Yeah, and uh, there are even more income trusts soon to be launched as well, aren't there? Uh, what What are some examples of those? Well, some examples include Jupiter Emergent and Frontier Income Trust, which we expect to to launch its IPA um, very soon. It's targeting a yield of 4% by investing in developing economies. And um, what's happening as well with funds raising additional capital? Because they appear to be very oversubscribed, don't they? Yes. Um, so unless we spoke to Winterblood said that um, a lot of these trusts that have de- delivered their target returns and have been able to maintain their premium, I find it much easier to raise additional capital. Um, for example, international public partnerships was four times oversubscribed for a recent issue. OK, Andrew, what do you think that's a sign of? Is, is that... Uh a sign of there not being enough of the kind of investment company investors want already in the market? Is it a sign of uh, some kind of frothy market activity? What What do you think? I think it's a sign of a lack of opportunity in the market. By, by definition, oversubscription of IPOs means there's more demand than supply. And what we've seen is that persistently low interest rates on a bank account and low government bond yields has meant that investors who need income uh, have really had to look at higher risk areas of the market, such as equities for income. And clearly that is quite risky in terms of the risk of capital loss. So a lot of these IPOs are looking at income from diversified sources of returns, which is important because when you have an income portfolio, you need to make sure that your sources of income are diversified. And the uh, investment trust IPOs we've seen do play to that theme. Okay. And um, why do you think there has been such a pickup this year in both primary and secondary issuance? Is it all kind of a reversal on that negative Brexit sentiment? um, Or is it the just far higher demand that you were speaking of there? No, the demand for income has been here for for many, many years, really since uh, interest rates hit rock bottom uh, after the global financial crisis. Clearly, some IPOs were put off prior to and in the immediate aftermath of Brexit due to the uncertainty that it generated. But now that we're in a sort of state of suspended animation with regards to Brexit, I think many people have decided to proceed uh, as there's no point doing nothing for the next two years. Uh, Life has to go on. Plus, I think central banks continue to keep monetary policy relatively loose, uh, which should support the equity market and therefore the IPO market. Okay, for investors, is it wise to buy an investment trust at IPO or do you think it's better to wait and see what happens? Well, we do both, but it does depend on the circumstances. We don't require a specific track record associated with a a collective investment vehicle before we invest in an IPO, but we would certainly expect the management team of an IPO to be able to demonstrate a successful history of investing in and managing the assets they are looking to acquire uh, with the proceeds of an IPO, certainly. So what, what would be kind of your criteria then? You want to see managers with track record, what else might make you invest? 
I think what we're looking for is general capability of the management team to acquire and invest the assets that they are looking to put into the IPO. That doesn't necessarily mean they have run a fund with the exact same strategy for a long period of time, but it does mean that the team needs to demonstrate uh, uh, the skills and the experience and the capacity for them to be able to successfully manage the company once it has IPO'd. Okay. And and what's your preferred way to, to get income from an investment trust? Sustainable, high quality free cash flow uh, with the potential for organic growth that can keep up with inflation. Uh, within reason, we're happy with modest gearing and option writing and other strategies to augment income. But at the end of the day, it nearly always comes back to that uh, sustainable, high quality free cash flow. And um, so with that in mind, do you think there are trusts out there that, that are really worth paying high premiums for, for that kind of security of income? Or are there trusts which you think are currently great value for the income they generate? The higher the quality of the income, the more you will pay i.e. the lower the yield on the trust. Uh, Higher yielding trusts will normally come at the expense of higher risk in terms of that income's sustainability and also in terms of the risk of capital loss. So it really does depend on your client's needs and preferences as to uh, which is better. Okay, thanks, Andrew, and thanks, Emma, for that. Finally, it's no secret that if you're holding cash right now, your money isn't working hard for you. The rate of inflation is already exceeding the Bank of England's 2% target and uh, rates on savings are dismal. So we commonly hear that if you want to get reasonable returns, you need to move into the stock market. But how should you do it and should you do it? Uh, Emma, what are good reasons for moving out of cash and into equities and bonds? Well, as you've mentioned, Kate, interest rates, as everyone's aware, are very low. And with inflation rising, it means that the cash that you're holding in your bank account is making a negative real um, return in real terms. So equities are able to offer long-term growth potential, which is one good reason. Are there situations where you definitely should stick to cash? Yes, there are. If you have a short-term horizon, which is considered to be anything less than five years, um, where you're likely to need access to your money, it's better to keep it in cash despite low interest rates and okay so thinking about making that move uh what's a good way to start for low risk investors seeking growth um a good way to begin if you've got a long-term horizon is to hold equity funds um and funds are a better way of doing that because as well as you're getting the long-term growth potential you're getting better diversification than holding individual shares And uh, what are some examples then of funds for people maybe dipping their toe into that equity market for the first time? Um, Well, we look at a number of examples in this week's money piece. But one example is Rathbone Global Opportunities, which invests in 40 to 60 companies um, around the world, mainly in developed countries. And it's got had very good performance of um, first quarter performance over both three and five years. Okay. Okay. Andrew, what do you think are the types of asset and maybe some examples of funds uh, which a low-risk investor might might want to hold? Well, diversification is key, and uh, that can be achieved by investing across a range of funds and asset classes or by investing in one fund that is itself diversified. Potential returns shouldn't be too dependent on what happens to equity markets. So if equity markets fall a lot, ideally your investment uh, won't fall by nearly as much. Right. And Emma, what kind of things do the experts say um, you should hold if you're in this position? Um, Well, certainly, you know, equity income funds are a good option. 
um, as you're able to take payouts from them or reinvest them for growth. And even if markets fall and the capital value of the fund falls, um, hopefully you can still receive decent dividends from them. And so what are some examples of those? Well, options include CF Woodford Equity Income, which is run by high profile manager Neil Woodford, who's had a history of very, very good returns. That fund aims for attractive long term total returns by investing in quality companies. And it currently has a yield of 3%. Great. Now, Andrew, what kind of assets do you think investors should look at if they maybe have a shorter time horizon and they really need capital preservation? Well, as Emma alluded to, the only sure way to preserve your capital uh, over the short term is to put your money in a a bank account up to the government's limit for for guaranteeing retail deposits. Even investing in relatively safe areas such as government bonds do run the risk of losing capital over any time period. That is why careful consideration has to be given to diversification to minimise the risk that any market scenario will result in capital loss. But it's crucial to remember that taking any sort of risk means that capital preservation cannot be guaranteed. Okay, but for anyone who is thinking, well, firstly, about diversification and maybe moving into bonds, how do you think they should approach uh, bond exposure via funds? Regarding bond funds, as always, it it depends on what you want. Traditional bond funds will typically do poorly if, uh, as we expect, interest rates rise. But these funds could also do well when equities fall. So they can offer good diversification away from equities. But there are also funds in the area of strategic and absolute return bond funds that are interesting insofar as they have a lot of flexibility to generate positive returns regardless of the market environment. So they may not do too badly if interest rates rise. However, they can also sometimes be more correlated to equity markets than traditional bond funds. So they have less diversification benefits. It really does depend on what you have in the rest of your portfolio and your uh, investment requirements. Great. Well, I think we've got um, quite a few more fund recommendations in the article. So definitely worth taking a look at that. And that's all we've got time for this week. So for more on everything that we've talked about today, take a look at the magazine. Otherwise, we'll be back next week. and Have a great weekend. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.